All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Wait a minute, is that a DX7? That is a Dino Chorus patch on my uh, montage. Okay. We got it. Nice, nice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to... Another episode of Questlove Supreme. I don't know, uh, Steve and Maya, we, we might need a, another superlative. Like, you know, like James Brown mm-hmm. has the famous flames. I think we should be like the legendary Supreme or, you know, something, something even more exciting. We dropping legends. Right. Yeah, okay. you know, because I feel like uh, every episode is yet another kind of bucket list uh, that we didn't know that we wanted to check off uh steve mm-hmm. i feel like this is going to be the Your time the, to shine bro the, yeah this this is the steve uh mvp episode not to put any pressure on you i've He's handled some it. episodes i think i had one of the top five episodes of last year if you want to check the numbers no nah, i'm host. just saying like this this is sort of like you know we had expectations for lebron to be the god back when in high school and all right. Well, I, I want you to do your intro, but but yeah, I was just telling <laughs> I, I, honestly before the before we started the show, I was telling Bob and Sonny that I do have a radio show on WKCR, Columbia University's radio station, and we the the show that we do is about jazz labels, yes. and each episode we cover a different label. And quite recently, a couple months ago, we did a a three hour episode about Tappan Zee Records, which is Bob's okay. label under Columbia in the late seventies and eighties and into the nineties, yeah. I believe, uh, well, as part of Warner, but Tappan Z went on for a, a bit and I'm dying to talk directly to the man who started the label and who was the, it was such an influential label and it's getting a little lost. So I want to refresh our listeners with some, it's like the some most albums. Steven said in like 20 episodes. <laughs> I know. This, this is amazing. <laughs> like, this is amazing. I might I might just skip the intro. Uh anyway, Fonte, Laya, you guys cool? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We good. I'm living the, dream. Uh, living, the dream. living the dream. What's going on, man? What's happening? So 
I, I will basically say that our guest today, of course, is a legendary jazz musician, but I don't think we could just reduce him to jazz. Yeah, his music is smooth, but we dare not call him smooth jazz. His music is hip hop, but, you know, we we can't call him hip hop. But I think probably the most unique character trait of our guest today is probably my or not my our inability to to pinpoint what is he exactly is he an avant-garde artist is he a musical provocateur is he the godfather smooth jazz i don't know i will say that probably when the smoke clears and we start taking a toll of the artists that fall under the jazz umbrella and there's many categories under that i will say that as far as the scope of hip-hop, and yes, like we kind of come from a hip-hop scope because of our age and whatnot. Uh, we get to know a lot of these artists through the power of sampling. I will say that our guest is probably at the top of the list. Like I think hands down, he's one. He's the king of textures, which is something that you don't necessarily hear someone describe another musician, but listening under a, a, a hip-hop context, texture means everything. Um, I also think that our guest is probably one of the kings of... The, the perfect four bar capture the the ability to transform your new creation into something else that's just how adventurous he is cut to cut to cut to cut from album to album and i will say that um probably one of the the best engineered artists under the contemporary jazz umbrella just his sound speaks to probably everyone in my generation and beyond because, of course, a lot of his music is the foundation for some of the best hip-hop that I've ever known, that we've ever known. And you, the listener, you've heard his music, whether you knew it or not. He is, you know, multi-nominated, underappreciated, uh, loved, worshipped, always in demand, an absolute legend. This is the Bob James episode of Questlove Supreme, <sighs> finally. Man. Yes. 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 I hope that was recorded so I can uh, put it in memory. <laughs> <laughs> I cut it in half, like, because I, I could really yeah. do this for 18 minutes. You mentioned the best engineered. Did you mean engineered or did you mean like him engineering it, uh, a concept? Well, I mean, the, I, I, I'm trying to bring up the name Joe Jorgensen. Who was no, the, George Orton and, and Rudy. Like for me, just it's the perfect texture of, of compression and and natural sounds to me that mm -hmm. I think is what attracts my generation to his music. Because you know, like there's two ways to to take in music. You know, we come from a generation where you go digging, you take the records home, and I mean, with the notable exception of of Primo and Dilla, I don't know many hip-hop producers that actually listen and absorb the records like listen to it over and over and over again until they actually absorb it and you know because a lot of us just skip put it on 45 nope 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 nope, nope. oh that's something you know and you skip around but to me it's, it's one of the some of the best engineered music for for the purpose of sampling but you know again it's like you can listen to his music under different scopes not just like oh from a sampling perspective but that's the thing. You, you can't categorize it. One more thing before 
maybe we let the guests speak. Right. Uh, well, let's uh, have a whole episode where he just doesn't talk. <laughs> Good thing you brought your keyboard, Bob. Right. Yeah. I'm smiling. Um, I'll just sit here and listen. So I, I think the word that you were missing in your intro and why it's so hard to describe what he did and what he does is fusion. I think that what he did was basically just another version of, of fusion jazz. But I feel like any description for a jazz artist is almost like a four-letter word. But fusion, you know, is is includes obviously whatever uh, many different things that are being fused. Well, um, let's ask him, Bob James. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. Finally, <laughs> nineteen minutes later, <laughs> you know that's if, how we do it. If all is said and done, and without sort of you know, oftentimes artists will, and I'm guilty of it, like sort of ducking and dodging the the accolades. Like, what would you like us to know you as? And, and describing your artistry? I don't know that I'd probably be the right person because so busy doing it, I, I never could stay in one category for very long. Maybe I was just uh, too restless or, or something. But at one point earlier in my career, my wife advised me that we were having a conversation about I thought I was spreading myself too thin and I should focus more on one thing and make up my mind whether I want to be an arranger or, or a pianist and in what genre, classical jazz or whatever. And she, she said, stop worrying about it. Just do what you do. And that may be what sets you apart or makes you different from other artists is that you do a lot of stuff. And so I've kind of stayed with that and, and not attempted to categorize myself or or, or go too far into one direction because I love the variety and the challenge of it. Right now, I'm, I'm trying to meet hip hop head on rather than have it happen off to the side where they take a chunk of me while I'm not there in the room to be able to defend myself. Uh, <laughs> it might be good to get in there and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, before you chop me up, let's see if we can. Uh, <laughs> Go from beginning to end every now right. and then. Okay. So Bob James, he does a lot of stuff. The reason why I said fusion though, Bob, is because I feel like uh, Tap and Z Records and a lot of what you've done in your career was was f not only fusing different types of music together, but also really incorporating the the place and the time period into your into your music, like New York City in the late seventies and early eighties and and you know the the city and the and the time period did that play a lot into into the music i absolutely always have thought that one of the things about jazz since it's improvised so you're giving your feeling right at that moment on that day in that city wherever you are that it definitely does represent the time period and what's going on the, uh, it should anyway if we're being honest we're reflecting our time and that changes so I've resisted when people try to make a definition of what jazz is or of it, because it changes. It changes along with everything else that's going on around it. Bob, what was your first musical memory? <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting fired from being pianist at a tap dance class in my hometown. I think I was <laughs> 12 or something like that, and I couldn't keep the beat. So the tap dancers were, were tripping, and the, finally the – well, actually, the reason why I got hired in the first place is that I think I was the only pianist in the town that they could 
use to play for this tap dance class. I guess it's my earliest memory of trying to learn what keeping the beat meant. Wow. Still trying to learn. Who, who, would, who would have the gumption to fire a 12-year-old? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cold. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I, I don't exactly remember that, but I may have defined that too harshly. I, they, they may have okay, nicely told me to go home to my mom. <laughs> Passive aggressive firing. Okay. You couldn't keep up. Was it with the simple kickball change of it all? Is it one of those kind of classes of beginners? I was just curious. If Damn, it was why are you with the tap terms? I just, I mean, come on, you know, I'm a, I'm a Heinz girl. Was there music around your house growing up? Not a whole lot. Uh, my my father was a lawyer, and we I lived in a small town in Missouri, where uh, what I did here was mostly country music. Mm. And my parents didn't even really have that many records that came close to jazz either. I started hearing a little bit and getting intrigued, high school maybe, uh, and I remember kind of liking that feeling that it was improvised as opposed to what I perceived classical music being too much practicing and jazz represented at that time escape from practicing so you because you could just make it up uh, anything that came into your head and it's only been in more recent years that I decided that practicing even somewhere in relationship to jazz was a good thing and not a bad thing. Oh, oh. So ar around what year was that when you discovered jazz? Well, uh, the 1950s, uh, mid-1950s. And mm. I, I do remember that that was pretty much the, the highlight of the West Coast jazz, because I do remember Chet Baker, Jerry Mulligan, Dave Brubeck. Those names formed, or the style of it, the West Coast style, was mm. intriguing to me. Only in college did I kind of get more, tried to get more deep. I, I know there's this famous story um, of, a, was it a talent show or, or something, some kind of competition where uh, the, the bands were being judged by Henry Mancini and Quincy Jones? And is, yeah, how, is it, how about that for a panel to, to be judging? Yeah, it was a very uh, pivotal time in my life. I was... At that time, I just uh, graduated from the University of Michigan, and there was a kind of big avant-garde group of musicians uh, that I became associated with because they needed performers who were willing to be really daring and, and do crazy things. The, the avant-garde world was really out at that time. And so I was incorporating some of those avant-garde things into my jazz trio, and I decided to take the trio down to Notre Dame, where this jazz festival was being held. And it was very conventional. We were expected to play bebop. And uh, I kind of deliberately went up against that and started playing some crazy stuff, along with some bebop. Mm -hmm. And it caught Quincy's ear especially. I kind of don't remember whether Henry Mancini was into what we did, but Quincy definitely was, and it put a smile on his face gave me a chance to meet him and we kind of prevailed at that uh, in the winter's circle at the festival and Quincy signed me to record deal uh, so it gave me confidence to move to New York and go into the jazz business did you finish school yep I got a master's degree 
in composition, mostly classical uh, training. My my jazz training was extracurricular. Uh, I'd go into Detroit from Ann Arbor and look around for place to sit in. Yeah. And and so Quincy signed you to was it Mercury? Yes, it was. And we recorded the album in Chicago. He was living there, I think, at that time, and that's where we, where he was. The Mercury was based in Chicago. And, and so this is like the early '60s, right? Yes, '63, '62, '62, '63. And so. Um, I, I know that at the end of this small part of the conversation, Quincy eventually uh, recommends you or leads you to Creed Taylor, and that gets you to CTI. Um, but what happens in between there in the in the mid '60s? Uh, another big pivotal time was when I got the job with Sarah Vaughn, her music director, pianist, 1965. Wow! And I had learned that her pianist Ron L. Bright had left. And she was looking around, and indirectly, Quincy was involved in that too, because I, where I learned that that Sarah was looking for a pianist was at this music copy service in Manhattan, where uh, uh, I used to hang out and watch all the arrangers come in with their charts that music needed to be copied. This was this was before the computer era, where the copyists were still uh, copying out the parts for the musicians in ink. So anyway, uh, yeah, I learned about this possible job, and I had actually met Sarah very briefly once when I was playing with Maynard Ferguson's band at Birdland in New York, and Sarah came in to the club, and Maynard asked her to come up to sing, and of course, she didn't have any arrangements with her, so she couldn't do anything with the big band, and that's when my nerves kicked in because the pianist always kind of gets the uh, uh, responsibility to have to play the chords. And, and once she, <laughs> once she calls out a song, you better know it because <laughs> she, she wouldn't have come in with any music even for the pianist. Right. And I got really, really lucky that, that night because she said, do you know the sweetest sounds? And I was able to say fairly quickly, yeah, what key? This, in, in the jargon of, of that time, lets the person who asks you about it know that you're, that you're prepared. And at that time, there was a Broadway musical that had just opened up, and, uh, and The Sweetest Sounds was one of the songs in that musical. It was a brand-new song by Richard Rodgers. And... Um, but anyway, I was kind of a fan of musical theater, and it's just complete coincidence that, that I knew this song. I just barely, she, Sarah was one of the first cover artists to sing it out of the Broadway show. And so uh, it made an impression on her. And it was at least a year or two after that that, that I uh, responded when she was looking for a pianist, and she remembered that night. And I got the job. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson, 
Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I have to ask a real uh, amateur jazz question. Now, you know, my tenure in school was like in the 80s and 90s. So, of course, I'm in a generation that grew up with having access to what they would call a fake book. Was there... Any sort of cheat, cheaty, fake books of that level back in, well, you know, those songs were also being written in real time, but how does a musician learn these repertoires? Like, you would just have to go to the store and just buy all the sheet music to everything, or were there fake books out back then? Yeah, in my memory, there were fake books uh, that that kept getting bigger as a, as a tool, you know, as now we... We have it in our phone. We could look look up any song and uh, similar kind of a fake book thing that we could do. But at, at that time, I'm reasonably sure that this song was so new that it wouldn't have been in a fake book anyway because it okay. just came out. And in Maynard's band, the only thing I would have had on the piano was his charts that I was playing with him. And so when she came in unannounced and surprised that, that – uh, if I hadn't known that song, it might have changed my life, and I probably wouldn't have gotten the gig later. I see. Now, every time we have a, a jazz artist on the show, uh, the first thing they want to do is sort of dispel, not only dispel the myth, but sort of dispel it in a 
kind of a a, a stick to a, a pinata way. Now, in general, if you're moving to New York City looking to make a living playing uh, this music, jazz in particular, you pretty much have to be a wizard at reading music, correct? I wouldn't say you have to. Uh, oh, my was, God. What's up with y'all? <laughs> well, you know, there were two different approaches to it. In my case, I I think I was pretty clearly thinking that the more training you had, the better. And that just meant it increased your odds of getting a gig. And some of the gigs were not necessarily going to be a jazz gig. You might get a, a gig playing for a wedding or, or whatever. And certain kind of gigs if you couldn't read you wouldn't get that gig but certain jazz gigs it didn't make any difference whether you read or not because it, 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 we all know that the the greats that were not readers and, right. uh, and that's just a particular way and i i felt also to happen for me with Creed taylor he was a very much his style with his label had a lot of production values and he was adding strings and woodwinds and various things to, to start out with a basic jazz group and then give it the same kind of production details that pop artists had. So he needed a ranger to do that. And it's turned out that he, he learned that I was qualified to do it after having been introduced to him by Quincy Jones. So I got that job because of my training, and uh, and it helped me get the job. All right, let's take Valley of the Shadows, which maybe our audience might know that as uh, Group Homes, uh, The Realness. Now, Valley of the Shadows, which has so much, like, stop on a dime, you know, just, like, all this arrangement stuff. So am I to believe, like, Steve Gadd or Idris Muhammad? We're giving these charts and knew exactly when the the like the the starts and stops were because I'm imagining that you guys can't live in a studio. Like I come from a place where like I've written complete albums inside the studio, whereas like I'm assuming that jazz musicians have to have this stuff prepared ahead of time. You just go to studio and you knock it out real quick. You don't waste time doing 15 takes, 20 takes, or whatnot. So. Like, do they just study the music or do you give them a cassette of the arrangement ahead of time and they just commit it to memory? It was all variations of that over many years. Uh, you, you mentioned Idris Muhammad. In my memory of working with Idris, it's been a long time, but Idris may have been able to read a sim simple chart, but okay. he was not what we would call reader. And okay. so if I was going to hire Idris, I wouldn't put a big complicated chart in front of him because even if he did, it would change his approach to playing. And what I wanted from him was his his own loose, uh, non-obedient reading a chart kind of style. So mm -hmm. in some cases, we, we were deliberately trying to move away from a kind of written approach to the rhythm section at the basic tracks because we had started during that era of overdubbing and, and not having everybody in the room at the same time so for the most part most of those cti records we would record the rhythm section first and the production part of it would come afterwards so i could i could work with two different kind of musicians i could 
go in on the rhythm section day and do a very loose with minimum kind of chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then once I had that basic track, I'd take that home and and score the more uh, complex stuff or the stuff for the larger orchestra. And so I guess we we did it both ways. And and for a piece like uh, Valley of the Shadows or Night on Bald Mountain, some of those things that were adaptations of classical music, it definitely required. A, a chart and a musician that could read. And okay. so I hired them on the basis of that, and it wasn't categorical because the next day I might want to do something that was totally loose and just play some blues or, or whatever. And, and then reading would take that music in the wrong direction. Got it. In, in developing your um, initial sound, who were you idolizing? Yeah, I, I wasn't too different from most other aspiring jazz pianists in that I listened a lot to Oscar Peterson and Bill Evans, maybe the two that I listened to the most. Of course, I tried to listen to everybody, Errol Garner and Art Tatum and on and on and on. But but I, I usually came down to thinking that three of those pianists influenced me the most when I was um, trying to break into the field. Uh, and I would add Count Basie to Bill Evans and Oscar Peterson. Count Basie, just because his minimalism of playing only a couple of notes every eight measures, but he knew exactly when to play them. And, and I love that economy of not playing too much. He was sort of the opposite of Oscar Peterson. And Oscar Peterson had so much chops that I could, I knew I could never do that anywhere close to the way he did it. So I better try to find some other approach. Mm-hmm. Is, is Bill the, is he partly responsible for why the Fender Rhodes became your signature sound or was just? Um, no, as a matter of fact, I didn't like the way either Bill Evans or Oscar Peterson played the Fender Rhodes. Um, and they only played it occasionally. And it always seemed to me to sound like they, either had to do it or uh, uh, experimented with it and ended up not liking it. If, if you look at their overall recorded repertoire, you won't find very many Fender Rhodes tracks from Bill Evans or Oscar Peterson. And when I heard them play it, uh, both of them, I hope I'm not being sacrilegious, but they they hit it too hard. They hit the keys too hard. They, they wouldn't change their technique they played it like it was an acoustic piano. Yeah, you can't play that instrument that way because it, it, the, the acoustic piano has so much more dynamic range. Uh, and I, I don't know, it, it, it formed my style at that time because I was asked to do it. I hadn't gone out and found Fender Rhodes on my own. Rudy Van Gelder had one in his studio and I started being asked to play it. And to my ear, I had to change my technique to make it sound good. Was it, was it um, like now it's so commonplace, but um, in the early 60s when they're, when they're developing this instrument, like was it foreign? Was it like, a, like, I mean, the way that we look at probably the way that we're looking at AI technology right now, like was it sort of a thing to marvel or something to master? Like, what were your feelings on it? It was it was um, a gig to me. I wasn't even really 
um, I was playing it uh, um, because of, because I had to. On, that was my assignment on that particular gig because they wanted okay. roads. When my heart was still with the acoustic piano, until I began to realize that I was getting identified with it, and that I had some kind of approach that people were hearing that that almost forced me to take it more seriously. Uh, when uh, my album, uh, the the first solo album that I made for CTI had Feel Like Making Love on it. And there was a sound that I had used Fender Rose on Roberta Flax because I played piano for her on, on her version too. So that sound became very much identified. That was what, 1974, I guess. In, in some ways, I felt limited by it because it just had, no matter what you did, there was only one way that I could make it sound uh, authentic or good. Okay. So um, I, I kind of want to start in your discography. Um, the the period in between uh, the first album, uh, The Bold Conceptions, that uh, Quincy produced, and your second album, um, explosions, which really doesn't get discussed enough. In I'm turn, glad it doesn't because if it got discussed too much, I might not have a career. <laughs> <laughs> the night and day of those two records. I mean, in 1965, I like I know by, you know, I know by like 59, 60, like there was there was avant garde jazz and whatnot, but your version of it is way beyond like, you know, Coltrane's thing was more spirituality and then, you know, like the stuff of the shape of jazz to come and all those things like, which I think they're being avant-garde with notes, but you know, you're kind of taking at least listening to those records. Um, I mean, if I could be bold to say, and you know, notwithstanding the, 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 um, early like electronic records of the 60s which were more like demonstration records or uh, that sort of thing but like dare i say like that might have been one of the very first electronica records like just in terms of you using different frequencies and 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 whatnot like what made you go from night and day from like bold conceptions to explosions well, it, it, it actually, in my memory, was not totally night and day because they were kind of all related. And there were some elements in the Explosions album that I had already been experimenting around and that had gotten Quincy's attention. The, the two classical avant-garde composers that participated in the Explosions album were Robert Ashley and Gordon Muma. And they were both uh, exploring different versions of what at that time was called electronic music. But it was it, it was a combination of what was called music concrete. And that was taking just natural sounds like a train um, engine or birds or whatever, and then manipulating them with tape machines. There was no personal computer digital way we look at electronic music now didn't exist at that time. There was a lot of tape manipulation and they did have oscillators. So there, there were some very, very primitive, what we now call synthesizers that were just beginning to be put together. 
And what I tried to do with explosions is, is I, I guess you, you could say it was similar to the way artists use backing track uh, more recently. So the, the this electronic tape of or sampling or sampling wink where something <laughs> yes yes. So that's the, the sample plays or the, uh, the backing track plays, and then we would improvise over the top of it in a more conventional jazz way. And so the two different elements would clash with each other, and that created the conflict or the avant-gardeness. Uh, and it was, it was all, seemed to be all about pushing boundaries. What are the limits of what could be called music? Uh, as a sound, organized sound, chaos, and different people used a different approach. Sometimes it was uh, anger and uh, thumbing their nose at the audience. The, the idea of making an audience happy in the conventional sense or, or making them fall in love, they, they wanted to do the opposite. They mm -hmm. wanted to make them so angry that they'd walk out of the theater. And uh, with the, so there was all variations of that and debate about it and what's what's meaningful or what isn't. So you had the people that loved it, but you had as many or more people that hated it and thought it was noise. And right. so we, in my youth, I was fascinated by it. I actually loved it at some times that, and I always felt during that time that. I had the power to change it because I could play conventional jazz. I liked to surprise my audience that just when they thought we were just playing some conventional bebop, all of a sudden electric electronic sounds would come in and then we were suddenly in a completely different world where, where mm -hmm. I'd be uh, stroking the strings with my hand or getting a, a mallet and playing beating on the side of the piano and, <clears throat> And, and we were part of the time seducing the audience and part of the time confronting them with uh, surprise and making them deal with it. At that point, were you familiar with like artists of the time, like a, like a Raymond Scott or uh, the Tonto guys or just any of those experimental synthesizer records? Yes, I was. Those two names, I don't remember. But, but I was more uh, influenced by the people in the classical avant-garde world, like John Cage mm -hmm. and, um, and Stockhausen and those people that were, it was a different kind of experimentation. Okay. Uh, in the jazz world, Don Ellis, the trumpet player, was also very involved in avant-garde music at that time. And there were the Moog guys, the, when the Moog synthesizer came up, came into being a little bit later. Actually, by that time, I was sort of losing interest, frankly. The idea of making the audience hate me started, started to be so uh, severe that I thought, well, I'll never be able to make a living if, if I make my idea. <laughs> You're saying that you were going for more of like a Stravinsky make the audience hate me thing or just... No, uh, because... Schoenberg might be a, a better example. Better example. Okay. Of, of, because Stravinsky's music, people realized fairly quickly that it was just great. And, and it was the. Well, they also the, rioted 
you know, and the- it had melody. It had all of the things, and it's survived as a as a real classic. Even though the dissonance shocked people a little bit yeah. at the time, uh, but it was cinematic. It it uh, I never never viewed him as avant garde. It was more um, what we say about it. It's a provocateur, musical provocateur. He had come out of the impressionist era, era when when the romantic era of the nineteenth centuries. Uh, gradually, they began to get tired of tonal music and the, the tonal and conventional dissonance. And so, the in impressionist era, Ravel and Debussy, it, it was a blur. And where's where's the tonic? Uh, so by Stravinsky's time. He was going further in that direction and uh, more dissonance and a less conventional tonality, but still making the attempt to, um, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think he wanted his audience to hate him like we were, we were sort of doing at that time. It was, okay. a, it, it was fun and a um, temporary interest. For me, just trying to learn what what were the limits, and and I learned just for myself that the limits that, that I wanted to go back to were far more conventional, and I wasn't really the the getting the it wasn't reaching my heart. The avant garde side of it was a curiosity for my brain, but I more and more. Uh, Started to like the romantic side, and probably those four years that I spent with Sarah Vaughn, she certainly wouldn't have let me play any avant-garde piano. Right? Yeah, I was trying to imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had to really play all the, learn the standards, and not only learn them, learn the great voicings and everything, so I could inspire her, and that became my life. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So why did it take almost a decade for you to get to your third album, your run of your period, which, you know, for most collectors, believe that one is your, they seem to think that's your first record, even though it's not. But just as the Bob James, as we know, why why did it take you till 1974 to start your your part of the story from the, from the after explosions and after i kind of was re, re, thinking that it was a dead end for me it was immediately after that that i got the job with Sarah Vaughan. that was a four year thing okay and by that time i had given up any notion of being a, a leader when i first came to new york i i sort of came as the bob james trio i thought of myself as a jazz pianist and was thinking about trying to make a solo career. But I really liked that job with Sarah, being an accompanist. And I started getting arranging jobs as a result of it. And I liked that. It, it provided a steadier income in New York. And I was starting to get arranging jobs. And by the time I got to 1970, uh, when I got the job to to play on Quincy's album, Walking in Space, which was my introduction to Creed Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that gave me the opportunity for Creed Taylor to see what I could do, that I could write for large ensembles. And and still, by that time, I was not thinking of myself as a solo artist, and I didn't even think I was going to pursue it. How musical was Creed Taylor? Well, he definitely wasn't one going out and, and playing an instrument or conducting or arranging uh, he did have some training that I heard about only by reputation. I never saw him do it. Uh, I think you could describe him as a visionary. He had a definite idea of of how to make, he wanted his label to have a style, a sound, and a look, even his packaging and his choice of covers and mm-hmm. everything about it. He had a very strong producer vision uh and so his the style of the one element of it that he talked to me a lot because he wanted me to be one of the ones helping him realize his vision he was a very very passionate fan of the music and he had his favorites he had his taste and that that formed his choices that he made throughout those years but 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 does he allow you to really have say like I know that you started producing after the four out like by yourself, but like are you allowed to have say in these first four records? Definitely did. I had a lot of say. And you you mentioned Valley of the Shadows right off the bat, which was completely me going um as almost as avant-garde as I would have a, a project of his where he was a producer. But he gave me a lot of leeway and the arrangements. The basic thing that gave me that job early on working with him was that one of his stylistic things was to 
take a classical theme that he thought that people would recognize that, and then convert it into having jazz performers reinterpret it. And that became such a, a, a trademark for him all, almost. And when he saw that I was able to work with classical music and rearrange it and all that, that that's led me down that path with, with him. Okay, so take something like uh, Night on Bald Mountain, which, you know, if you're a Disney fan, you know that from Fantasia. Uh, I'll admit that I met Night on Bald Mountain because it was on side three of Saturday Night Fever. You know, I was also like seven years old when it came out. But when you're doing these interpolations of, of classical music into jazz, one, are you doing all the arranging and how many man hours does it take for you to write each part because you're you know i'm assuming that you're doing these arrangements for your your brass section your string section like for one song how many man hours does it take for you to write these arrangements out a lot uh i was fast and you, you kind of had to be I, I grew up watching the great arrangers uh and and quincy had told me about that music copying service that i mentioned about earlier and I, I would go in there and watch how they would work. And the, there were people like Billy Byers, and there the, were the people that got a lot of the jobs. And I saw how they did their scores and, and how they set up the scores so they would make it easier for the copyists to copy the parts and well-organized and everything, because very often there were deadlines where you had to deliver half a dozen charts overnight and for the session the next day. So I learned to be fast. And I, I, I definitely wasn't the fastest, but I, I could put something together pretty quickly. And I had studied it in college, uh, so I, I, that the part of that whole process was getting to know the range of the instruments and the kind of ways that you could write for an instrument that would make that player sound better if, if you kept it in the right range. You know, lots and lots of stuff like that. And I, I was. Uh, uh, the fact that I could do it allowed Creed Taylor to give me directions depending upon what classical piece he wanted me to reinterpret. He'd give me some ideas about it, but then he'd leave me uh, on my own to execute it. Um, and the Night on, Mountain, Night on Ball Mountain chart that I did, uh, and Steve Gadd played the drum part, it was all about featuring him at that time. I just kind of know him, and I I knew he could read whatever I put in front of him, but keep it in the spirit of uh, free-flowing jazz playing. Right. And even with that arrangement, we went in first with the rhythm section mm -hmm. and recorded that. And I refined my score after that, somewhat based upon the fills that Steve would play. I used to like to do, oh, do the reverse. Of, okay. so rather than give Steve all the notes with all those hits on it, you know, the syncopation things, he would just play loose. And then, and I would, and I would you build have, around him. And yeah. And, and then when, ah. he, when he would hit those fills, I would make that the brass you know, notes <laughs> and make it sound like he was, he was answering the brass arrangement when actually, and, and some of that stuff, he, he wrote it and it was tight and in version, end version because the way he was oh, playing it was loose. You know what I mean? You, you. I knew Steve Gadd was a monster, but 
in my mind, okay, now it makes total sense that you do your rhythm section first and then you build around what your rhythm section does and then... Yeah. And ah, then in order okay, to do that arrangement yeah. that way, there had to be a pretty specific chart too because um, it, it wasn't just a uh, simple lead sheet for Steve and the bass player Gary King, all that. I, I had on, on that particular piece, it was a lot was written out but within that, since we didn't have the whole brass section in the studio, there was a kind of flexibility that we could use to get the groove happening and to make it so that it wasn't too too tight and too conservative in the way we played it. So I, my memory of what we were trying to do was have both, have it be a, a, a very specific chart, but also the feel of a loose improvised jazz performance. Your personnel, you know, reads like a just a reads like a who's who of just monsters. Of course, you know, they're monster musicians now, but back then I'm assuming that they were just, you know, dudes that played music. How did you go about gathering the personnel for your record? Because like it's mm, the cast it's just and leading into Tap and Z. It's just yes. It's so much about who's around you. So yeah, ask your question, please. Sorry. Yes. So how did, how did you come across like the Ralph McDonald's of the world, the Grover Washington juniors of the world, the, the Wayne Gary Andre. King. Yeah. Steve Gary, Gary think, King. Yeah. I don't think it's any different from what your world is now. New York is a great place. And, and mm-hmm. that's where, uh, maybe not quite as dominant as it was in the 1970s when I was doing my thing, but, um, everybody comes to New York to, uh, and, and that's where the, most of the gigs were. And by word of mouth, you start to learn who are the, the best people. Once I got on, onto Reed Taylor's list, he had his favorites, but the everybody was available to you. You could get George Benson to play guitar on your day. You could get Ray Brown to play bass, and you could get uh, whoever you want because it was New York uh, and then it just became a matter of casting and I loved that whole aspect all through my life I love the conversations about who the, who's the new guy and or gal and and who who's going to inspire you uh, and so you keep searching and every month we would find some new name that the uh, got in the door and you'd want to use them. And the best of them became the people that we're talking about now as a result of that. Did you and David Matthews ever collaborate at any time? No, uh, the, the, the other David Matthews, there, there's the, the there's doom David Matthews, but the arranger David right. Matthews, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was one of those things like Don Sebesky. I rarely was around him. If he got the job, I didn't. And if, if I got the job, he didn't. So there was usually only one of us on any particular project. I did get hired as a pianist for some of Don Sebesky's stuff, so I got to know him. But uh, the 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 other arrangers, Robert Friedman, I remember, and some of these other people uh, that I, I knew them by reputation, but rarely had a chance to be working on the same project. All right, just the the sequencing of your first album is just 
off the chain. And I got to know, whose idea was it to make such a radical version of In the Garden? Because, you know, when I hear In the Garden, it's either it's either used for wedding purposes. You know, it's always the it's always the pre-song that's played right before Here Comes the Bride or whatever. So I totally wasn't expecting it's it's almost like three things in one. Like, you know, it's 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 part rockabillyish bluegrass, but it's also jazzy and it's avant-garde. Like can you just tell us the genesis of that, or was it just like, roll the tape, I got an idea? Well, thank you for describing it that way, and, and even thank, <laughs> you for, thank you for remembering it, because I do sort of remember the day that I came into Cree Taylor's office and talked about wanting to do it, uh, to, to do that uh, composition. And, and we had already discussed a lot about his basic theory that if if a jazz artist took a classical theme, they would turn it into something else. And that was part of his stylistic thing. So the real classical name, which is also, I'm drawing a blank on it now, that I ended up calling In the Garden, came from a very well-known classical piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and at that time, I was using Hugh McCracken a lot, uh, the really great studio guitarist, but who had a... He did um, uh, dueling banjos, right? Yes. Yeah. From Deliverance, yeah. Deliverance, yeah. So he played banjo, guitar, and he was very authentic in those styles. So I knew that I could get a kind of raw, uh, almost country kind of sound out of him and make that piece eclectic, we didn't know exactly where we were going with it. It was a lot of experimentation in the studio. And Cree Taylor gave me the flexibility to experiment with that and to come up with something unique. It's almost like, you know, what that in particular, if a jazz artist had a, a public enemy, like that's the thing, like you're so hip hop without, the only other person I could describe that way was Prince. Like before Prince purposely started rapping, mm. Everything about Prince was hip hop in terms of like drum programming and all that stuff. But I mean, just the fact that you're mixing all these genres in one before it actually gets a home or some sort of identity is, you know, is kind of mind blowing. I mean, at the time, were you nervous or worried about what critics were going to receive this as? Your That's your downbeats, your you know whatever the 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 gods of critics of jazz critics were like. If you're not following a, a certain mold of of what is deemed acceptable status quo, are you nervous about this, or was the shield of CTI enough to I think protect I you? I to- can safely say that I was not nervous about it. If anything, I was not reluctant to be confrontational and to not give critics any easy thing to talk about and and i guess i always had a little bit love hate relationship with them and i I got more hate than i did love (laughs) times and so i I ended up saying who cares and i go it's my job to do it and their job to say what they think about it and i was not concerned about that at that time even 
forget about critics. I was not that concerned about retailer. He, he was my boss, but I wanted to confront him too and not necessarily come in with exactly what he expected. Now, the bravery, I guess, was has always been something that you, I feel like you have to have stay with your vision, no, no matter whether uh, people will agree with it or not. And on the one album we were talking about, I was not thinking at that time as that as a solo career album for myself. I didn't think I would have one. And Creed said it was time because I'd done so many projects for him with Grover Washington and various other uh, artists. I felt my identity at CTI was a ranger. And by doing a whole bunch of different eclectic kind of stuff, I was hoping to use that as like an audition to get more arranging jobs. And the, the more variety that I could show as an orchestrator, I could to present it to other clients. And it, it was my good fortune that I had some commercial success with it, that I was almost forced into uh, considering uh, a, a solo career after that. Can I share with you a little bit about Nautilus on that same album? Yeah, what's next? <laughs> talking to so many people about it and actually confronting with Wu Tang Clan guys and various people uh, about why. You know, I'm just, I kept asking the question why did Nautilus get sampled by so many people? What was it? Uh, and and I was able to share the story on that same one album. You, you asked about the sequencing. Mm -hmm. the, Nautilus was the last cut on side B, kind of deliberate because it was almost a throwaway and Reed Taylor knew that the other cuts would get the attention at that time. So uh, traditionally with the LP, you always may put your weakest cuts on the center, the, the last cut on the side of an album because the grooves were narrower. You know, you got your best bass sound on the, on the outside cuts. So nobody paid attention to Nautilus and then However, many 10 or 15 years later, I started hearing back that that that, that the hip hop producers were grabbing onto it, and I could not. I, I knew it had a, a, a good baseline, and I, Idris Muhammad playing drums, the groove was there, so I got that. But it just seemed like there had to be something else about it that it made it just keep showing up over and over, and it still does even to this day. So in a conversation with Riza uh, uh, on an interview that he was doing, suddenly something clicked in for me that I had kind of not been paying attention to at all, but it wasn't just a simple rhythm section groove that, that Idris and Gary King were laying down. I had written a pretty elaborate string arrangement for fun. Um, Reed let me do it. There was enough budget that I could hire a string section and write the arrangement. And there was this kind of mysterious, um, ethereal kind of sound that permeated that track. And if anything, I would have thought it would have made it less commercial because it, it didn't fit in with the, the other standard funk type of a string arrangement that, that I might have written. But as I've recently talked to the people in the hip hop community that that keep talking about that as being one of the essential tracks that have been sampled the most, 
I, I think it might be a combination of that groove and this um, almost classical blurry orchestration that's o- over the top of it. That, that, texture. Yeah, texture. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's, that's what I say. You're the king of textures. Like, and I can't describe it, but it's, you know, somehow you manage, like, I know you don't intentionally say, okay, let me create a song that somehow in six years uh, will hit another generation. Like, no one thinks that. Like, maybe a musician like me now will think that, like, okay, what I do now, maybe 20 years from now, it'll be in vogue. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you caught a compelling performance with musicians that just were tightly locked and the fact that you didn't plan it even makes it better because some of the best success stories in music all come from people that aren't calculating, here's lightning in a bottle. You know, like Michael Jackson trying to follow up Thriller. Like, I'm going to sell 100 million albums. Like, you can't you can't capture lightning in a bottle that way. It just happens or it doesn't happen. So Yeah, I, I totally believe it. And that's why I've always uh, tried to just enjoy the process of doing it and let whatever comes out of that happen. If you're passionate and if you're trying your best to get the best people, write the best arrangement, play the best solo, just do your best and keep trying to make the the level higher in that way, then you're still enjoying that even if it isn't successful. You've you've had that pleasure and privilege to to make music and, uh, and go through that process. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, around 87, when, you know, Peter Piper is coming out the gate, which, you know, I'll probably, I mean, you would say Fonte, that's probably one of the first out the gate uh, Bob James samples. Peter yeah, Piper, yeah. right? Peter Piper, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... 80s, yeah, 86, 87, yeah. Yeah, so when when this is coming out in 86, 87 and whatnot, what is your immediate thought of what's happening? I believe my first memory was Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And they, yeah, Touch of Jazz. Oh, Touch yeah, of Jazz. Yeah, you're right. They, they took my song, Westchester Lady, and the way they did it at that time, because I wasn't following what was going on in hip hop at all, but I found out about it after the fact and, and I listened to it. And yes, I was shocked. What the heck? You know, because it was just my record that played. It wasn't, it wasn't even a loop or a chunk. Right. And you could hear my melody, my composition. And suddenly I look at this album and it has a new title <laughs> they made it into a new song and they called it something else and i'm thinking wait wait a minute you know this is not right what's going on here and one of the first things that back then that came into my mind is hey if if they can do that if jesse jeff and and uh, and uh, will smith could just rap over the top of my record well i'll go out and get myself a frank sinatra record and i'll play some piano over the top of it and i'll <laughs> change the title on it. Uh, uh, from you know from uh, i left my right. heart in francisco i'll call yeah. it uh, bob james something or other whatever and i knew you could ghostface does that by the way <laughs> well, <laughs> so times have changed so right. but but that was my first reaction and also but and in I, your mind, you didn't think like some fourteen-year-old or fifteen-year-old is hearing that, and now looking at their parents' record collection, like, wait, I have that, and then now you have new fans. Not yet. Okay. Uh, eventually, you know, there's a lot of conversation about it, and if it if it had been just a fluke, I would have considered it more as a legal matter, and. And because throughout my sort of music business knowledge career, I have felt that copyrights and the protection of them are our most powerful weapon against big business. That okay. if the copyright itself, the ownership of it, the control of it, so that the the that you have some control over your destiny. Is a, was a very big deal for me. I fought for it in all of my contracts. And the only way that you can protect it is by, is by going to bat for it and not let people uh, plagiarize or fraudulently steal it. So, so that was really basic before I even was aware of what was going on in the hip-hop uh, world. Okay. And it, it, the whole structure of the legal thing hadn't happened yet where you where you could figure out a reasonable fair way to license and all those it was the wild west so (laughs) 
So, yeah, exactly. So you hear that happening, and I owned my recording of, West, of Westchester Lady and, and, I, and the compositions. So uh, I had to fight for it, and I did. And that sort of started me off in this world that at that time I thought it was a one-off thing and that I would just have to try to do my best to be compensated properly and then go on about my business. But it, it proved that, that it wasn't an isolated thing. Uh, and not only did the field get bigger and bigger, but the sampling of my music kept happening. So I had to make a, a decision about how to handle that. And eventually, yes, it became a very amazing deal that my own music got heard a lot more as a result of my name being associated in the hip hop community. So I, I ended up being very grateful for it, but always mixed feelings. Did you notice an immediate paradigm shift and reaction? Whereas like if you start the intro to Nautilus back in 1974, it probably wouldn't elicit the screams of, Oh shit. Like that. I'm certain that happened at blue note last week when you played there yes and and it's drastic change has happened i have so much uh appreciation and new respect new desire to confront this whole phenomenon Mm -hmm. of uh i want as as a copyright holder and as a composer who has fought hard to keep the rights to my music I want to be one of the people in the music community that educates young people to to learn about that, to learn about the business, to learn that these creations need to be protected and they need to be identified in the right way and and entered into the legal part of the music business in a legitimate way. Uh, so I've, I've kept fighting for that. Uh, but as I have learn more about the sample usage, I confronted RZA, mm-hmm. and I sort of, conf- I actually confronted DJ Jazzy Jeff, too, and and uh, there was a new cut on my album that will be coming out in the spring that is a collaboration with DJ Jazzy Jeff, where it's like, uh, let bygones be bygones, <laughs> where, you know, <laughs> Yeah, we're not only friends, we're in bed together with a track. You know, we collaborate, and, and I'm very happy that we're able to do that in right. a way that demonstrates that uh, we're all in the music business together. But in attempting to actually confront this issue for me, which is when they took Nautilus or Take Me to the Mardi Gras and redid it or used it, it was my creativity that was in this chunk or in this recording, and I was not in the studio to defend myself uh, artistically. And as I began to hear my music being sampled more and more, the chunks of it were taken in all kinds of different ways, manipulated more drastically, tempo change, speed sped up, slowed down, distorted. Kind of like explosion. Uh, kind of like explosions, <laughs> only I didn't have any control over the creativity. <laughs> right, right. I'm not there, so they do whatever they want. So I began to think if I could be in the same room doing my thing while they did their thing, a different result could come out of it where I would actually be at least be able to 
say, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 don't change this or, or something right. like that. So uh, uh, for five days, two weeks ago, I was in Riz's studio and we did pretty much exactly that. We, and wow. he, he did his thing and I did my thing. And a couple of times uh, I would do a kind of conventional jazz melodic thing or a baseline thing or something like that. And, and he would hear some very small chunk of it and he would ask his engineer, stop right there and take just these two beats. And suddenly my conventional melody had become <laughs> some completely new rhythm that I wouldn't have thought of in a million years. And now we're confronting each other. Either I have to be strong enough to say, you know, stay away from that or uh, right. or go along with it. Yeah. Fonte, uh, are you thinking about the Guitar Center beat right now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I hope it's not that. I think it's, it's not going to be that. But, yeah, fake Guitar Center beat. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. No, for me, for me, yeah. <laughs> a person who takes that and makes, I feel like someone's going to flip it like either vitamin D or something. <laughs> so, yeah, make it hard. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a long inside guy. joke. Oh, yeah. It's one of Riz's most like uh unorthodox creations I've ever heard in my life. So <laughs> when I when I heard you two were collaborating, the first thing I thought about was okay, the guitar center beat. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> right. Bob, do you recall um do you remember the reasons uh why uh you cleared Daytona five hundred, but you didn't clear the flowers record for Ghostface? Do you remember uh the reason for that? I do remember in those days we were trying to create a kind of formula, uh, which almost never worked because every new creation is different and every circumstance is different. But I tried to identify it in the amount of my actual recording that was used. And mm -hmm. if it was just a little chunk that only occupied, you know, 10%, mm -hmm. I tried to base the licensing fee uh, on the the uh, prominence of my music in the track. And if my bass line or my melody was prominent all the way through the track, it's essentially my composition that I have, that I own, and that I own that copyright. And they're mm -hmm. using it from beginning to end. I always uh, was pretty firm and rigid about, no, I'm not giving that up. I, uh, that, uh, and I don't. I don't think any composer who's proud of the ownership of their creation would ever want to give that up. Or just say. And when you say not giving it up, you mean not giving up any publishing on it, or just not letting them use it. Period. Well, e either version. Yes, not using, okay. not letting them use it. Period, unless they license it properly. If they okay. license it, and and to get a license to change my music when they use it from beginning to end. Uh, that why? I mean, why would I? Why would I? Why would any of you agree to do that? So here, here you've got this this song that you I understand. Think, yeah, I think yeah. Well, you asked the question: Why would any of us agree to do that? I think definitely it has to be a um, it has to be you know you have to be compensated and the business has to be worked out. Um, I just know for me as a hip hop fan. There are so many records that I never would have listened to if it were not for hip hop. Like I never would have went and listened to, you know, your first four. Well, not first four, but your albums one, two, three, and four. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, I never would have went back to those records had I not heard them in this context now. You know what I mean? So for me now, I look at it as just, you know, kind of just planting that seed and putting it in a context that we may not understand, but the generation after us, they may hear it and, you know, it goes, you know, it's pretty much, I look at what sampling was back for us back then. It's like what meme culture is now in the internet. You know what I'm saying? Like my son, you know, he, you know, watched The Wire and all because the gif, there's a gif of WeeBay that's like been used as a meme a million times. Right. But to him, it was just, oh my God, so that's where that came from. Like, you know, right. this is a 17-year-old. <laughs> oh, kid. that's right. It That is the new sampling. Yeah, it's like, oh, that is crazy. You know, I right. say, uh, in defense of the way this thing started to come together in the legitimizing of licensing and all of that, Mm-hmm. Many of the biggest samples of my music, such as Peter Piper, I didn't find out about until even two, three, four years later. After the fact. was too late. And I suffered, even if I wanted to confront, the statute of limitations prevented me from really being able to do what I wanted to do in some of the cases to protect my copyright. Couldn't couldn't do it. Uh uh, Questlove just called it the Wild West, and yes, it, it, it was during that time. You you fend for yourself, and you don't know the history of how it's going to turn out. If I had known that I would have had so much respect from the whole hip hop community, and they treat me with so much dignity, it makes me so happy and proud that I'm a part of it, and I know that I have gotten a lot from the fact that it historically happened. But when when it was the Wild West, when all that stuff was going on, I had no idea, and I was fighting for my own image as a jazz artist and mm-hmm. had a hard enough time with that, let alone have a hard time holding on to my own composition. I understand. Are there certain songs that you favor, like, of your usage? Like, for me, I feel like DJ Premier is probably the most ideal person to have utilized your work where it's not just straight up jacking it, but it's like the way he does it is, is amazing. But like for you, do you have favorites of like, Oh, that was clever or that sort of thing? A little bit. Uh, by the way, I really love meeting him last week. He, he had come a year ago, but finally had a chance to, to meet him and talk with him a little bit last week at the blue note. Yeah. Such a cool guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I am embarrassed in some ways to admit that I still don't listen to that much hip hop music. I don't guess what. Neither do we. No. <laughs> so, so I, I'm not well versed to talk about it. Uh, okay. But because of the opportunity to to be up on stage with Talib Kali and his other guests, finally I got some very great insight into the performance of of rap and hip hop and the way that it feels like jazz when I'm up on a stage and the, the skill and the, the, the spirit of it that I had not paid attention to and listening to the recordings, but being there with them was fantastic. Wait, let me, let me explain to our, our listeners. So um, basically Mr. James did a residency, a three night residency at the blue note in New York city with Talib Kweli Black Thought was there. Rakim was there. DMC. Yeah, like just basically, you know, it 
is this the first time that you finally had a a meeting of the minds between yourself and and hip hop MCs and a band that knew how to make this happen? I, I did a, the same thing with Talib last year. Uh, okay, so that that was the only other time, and it, it, and I really liked that in, in the way of getting to know in real time. The music's happening, the, the tune starts, and I'm playing right along with them. And and when Rakim was was playing his uh, version where he had sampled my piece Shambuzi. Yeah. <laughs> and it made me smile because I remembered a uh, um, percussion player that I used to work with all the time, Doc Gibbs. And yeah. Doc Gibbs had given me the title Shambuzi, which was kind of part of his vocabulary. And it just brought back a whole bunch of memories. And this, again, this, this, that was just an intro for me. Uh, the melody or the main part of that song, Rakim didn't use it at all. It, it was just the, those chords in the intro. Nevertheless, I loved the way he performed on stage with such confidence and charisma. And, and it made me proud, happy, and smiling that he had chosen my... You know, as mm-hmm. uh, uh, something to create a new piece out of it. What were your thoughts on everyday people or people every day by Arrested Development? Because I thought that was just a genius, like taking that little piece. Like to me, that was genius. What were your thoughts on it? Very, very complicated from the business end of it, and mm-hmm. uh, and actually, even from it was another example of something that I was not paying attention to know that my sample had even been used until way after the fact. Oh, wow. Way after it had become a big hit. So it, it came to me late in the game. And what had happened was uh, People Every Day had been released as the single without my sample on it. The first release mm-hmm. out didn't have my recording on it and kind of didn't go anywhere. And they uh, kept working with it, did a new mix, which ended up being called a metamorphosis mix. Mm-hmm. We did add the sam- my sample, and that became a big hit. Uh, and so quite clearly, I knew that my sample had made a difference in, in that record. But what we had, did not know at the time, and until it got litigious and kind of got a little bit ugly, shall we say. Serious. Uh, right. Uh, the, the, and this may or may not have had anything to do with their management, but more the record company's management. When the royalties came in, they somehow or other got channeled into the other version of, uh, oh. did not have my sample in it. So right. the royalties did not come my way. Uh, wow. And after a long period of time, and it was a very significant difference. Uh, so that's why they had to identify the Metamorphosis remix every time I see it well, used in public. Yeah, to- but, but even though they did, some unbeknownst to me and in the final analysis couldn't prove it anyway, uh, yeah. it got channeled wrong and it took us a long time before we ever, ever figured out, well, why is this statement for the other version uh, so huge and the statement uh, for Metamorphosis makes nothing? Because no one wants to write metamorphosis mix. <laughs> yeah, I assure you, not 
uh, yeah, I assure you, ninety percent of the ninety nine percent of the time, if someone's playing that song, they're they're definitely playing your version, uh, and that's and, and that's all it. the TV appearances and everything else. That that was yeah. the version that that became a hit. But um, I probably sh- shouldn't even be talking about details of this because there was a settlement that we finally reached, and okay, it was not particularly good, but. So I don't have good memories about that. Let's put it that way. Gotcha. You have good memories about Taxi, the Angela? Uh, Angela thing. Yeah, Angela thing. Well, uh, of course, that's all good news for me. You know, kind of, I could have never anticipated how that would become such a signature piece for me. And I thank the producers of that series, which is still in syndication. But the the most weird, but it turns out to be very celebratory, um, uh, sample usage of it turned out to be CeeLo Green when he used it on a tune called Sign of the Times uh, mm-hmm. recently and he just kind of sang over it, redid it added a lyric to it and it, and it, first it was a little bit shocking when I first found out about it because they, they hadn't come to me in advance about it either but it I, when I first heard it, I loved it so much that I just couldn't uh, be anything but happy about it. And we ended up with a really fair and nice licensing arrangement. And it has led to me being able to meet him in person in a similar way that I confronted Rizzo recently. But CeeLo and I did some stuff together. And uh, we wrote a song together that's going to be on the same new album of album okay mine. but yeah. if you haven't heard sign of the times by CeeLo, it's my taxi piece reinterpreted by him wow okay well wait you mean the sign of the times that rod timberton worked on that, that oh, that's piece? my sign of the times so yeah. oh of the times yeah right that rod timberton worked on worked on is on my album the okay. CeeLo version which he called sign of the times has his lyric that has sign of the times in the lyric i see it's so you know you have another version another song called sign of the times that's not right related to the temperton version there's several uh sign of the Times songs but but his his sign of the times has my taxi melody and a very very cool but very specific reinterpretation of it that uh it was a great opportunity for me to meet him and collaborate. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. 
So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask about your gear. I know that as a creator who... You know, since the Explosion record, like, you've been experimenting with, like, electronic sonics and whatnot. But I do know, like, a lot of those early synthesizers that were available in the 70s were monophonic, which kind of makes it limiting for you to play chords or anything. Like, you got to play one note. But I know, like, around 76, 77, when they were making polyphonic synthesizers, which allows you to, to make chords, are sort of manufacturers the the yamahas of the day or the or the 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 electronic makers of the day are they courting you are you getting endorsements are you sort of in that stevie wonder way where you know they go to him and herbie hancock with all this new gadgetry and like here like use our stuff and more specifically in the 70s early 80s not now where of course now you know we use that every day but in the in in the late seventies and eighties, like what was the the courting system like with keyboard makers and you? Uh, I, I don't remember exactly when I got endorsement from Yamaha, but I've been affiliated with them for many many years now. Specifically, the Disclavier, the acoustic piano that has MIDI capability that I use all the time. I love it, and mm-hmm. I, I have a montage and motif, whatever. I I use a lot of Yamaha gear. And uh, I am affiliated with them. Uh, most of the rest of my gear throughout has been, I pay for it. And I, I, I go to the music store and buy it, whatever. Uh, but oh, okay. Era, I were, you were talking about the polyphonic synthesizers. I can remember the early stages of that when it was very primitive by today's standards. And Oberheim was the company that I remember that had the polyphonic synthesizer that had separate oscillators for each sound. So in the Oberheim eight voice was the one I used a lot that, that you could play polyphonically on it, but each note and the chord was going to it through a different oscillator and manipulated very differently than the way the more recent polyphonic synthesizers are. So that gave it a character each oscillator, you could kind of tweak it, and there was a thickness about it that that gave that Oberheim uh, eight voice, where I made a lot of records using that. Uh, but and I remember that they were also funky in the sense that yes, you could play four, six, eight note chords, but 
it was the synthesizer was trying to catch up. If you tried to do anything too fancy or too fast, changing, it, it didn't behave like a, a, a piano would. Okay. So if you held the notes down, you could do a string pad or something like that. But if you tried to do something really, really technically fast with it, it was uh, clumsy. I was just going to ask, uh, I, I wanted to uh, make sure we got any questions about foreplay. Um, I used to do my homework to those records in school, <laughs> in high school. <laughs> so uh, I specifically uh, just want just uh, the Between the Sheets album and Elixir, like those, like I played those records, like, you know, back and forth. Uh, want to ask one, how did all you guys come together? And specifically, if you have any memories of recording, uh, why can't it wait till morning with Phil Collins? What that session was like. That's my shit. Many, many, many great memories uh, from those years. Uh, in, in 1991, I think it was, I was headed out to Los Angeles working on an album of mine. That album ended up being called Grand Piano Canyon. And uh, I had brought Harvey Mason to New York many, many times to play with me because most of my sessions were being done in New York at that time. Mm -hmm. But I had also, um, Lee Rittenauer had used me on a project of his and we were dealing with wanting to do reciprocal. So if, if I do something for you, play for you, I want you to play on my album, whatever. Favorite, favorite. Lee, Lee owed me a reciprocal and since he was LA based, I thought it might be more interesting for me to go to LA and use both Lee Rittenauer and Harvey Mason on my album. So I planned it and didn't know who to hire on bass. Uh, wasn't that familiar with the LA scene. So I asked both Lee and Harvey, who, who should I use on bass? And separately, both came up with the same answer, Nathan East, who I had not met, never had worked with him before. And I found myself in the studio with those three other guys, Nathan, Harvey, and, and Lee, and it, something clicked. And all four of us could just feel it wasn't like a regular recording session. The mm -hmm. combination of our backgrounds, our things that we had worked on, uh, different projects, whatever, it just felt really special. And, and on a break, we had a conversation about the idea of how do groups get formed? When, when, how did Weather Report get formed? How did the Modern Jazz Quartet get formed? When did they decide to put a name on it and, and be a group rather than an individual? And one thing led to another. I had an A&R job at Warner Brothers Records, and I was able to go to a meeting there and say, will you give us a budget to experiment <laughs> and do a project? never thinking about it becoming a, a full-time long thing. It was, it, it was at that time, maybe just one project was all we were thinking about. But uh, the first song of restoration, uh, my composition on my album was what we remember as being kind of like the first idea of a four-play sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so speaking of Warners, um, I always wanted to know this. I'm not asking this because you're categorized in a certain type of jazz, but I always wanted to know, you know, in 1977, when Tommy LaPluna and, and George Benson create the Breezen record, 
which was such a breakthrough album in terms of the multiple nominations that it got for Grammys and whatnot, you know, people were pretty much ready to dismiss George Benson and not dismiss him, but you know, even he said like, well, I'm at the end of my room. Let me make this last record real quick and then retire. And then suddenly reason blows up. But did you see the embracing of that album as a victory for the type of jazz that you were doing, the type of instrumental music that you were doing, the fact that that album was um, somewhat uh, embraced by the mainstream community and given all those accolades, all those Grammy uh, nominations and whatnot? Yes. uh, I I was experiencing it from a distance, having done some collaborating with George when he was at CTI, and I was a little bit familiar with the complicated exit from CTI when he went over to, to Warner Brothers and the sort of transition from just being a guitar player to a singer and uh, watched what was in George's mind and what he really wanted to do. And somewhat later after he went to Warner Brothers, I also got the job of producing one of his records. And at that time, the big bosses of Warner Brothers gave me the assignment of wanting him to play more guitar. But as I started to work with him, his heart was in singing more. And I could see that that has always been a conflict. And a lot of people, jazz fans, just are aware of the genius that comes out of his fingers when he plays guitar that nobody else can do it. But uh, his, his the whole other part of his personality felt that talent that he had as a singer too and in the in the Breezen album uh, both were happening both of course uh, uh, Masquerade and uh, and every time I hear Breezen that tune right it, the same thing happens to me there's no bridge which was for, for us at that time it's unusual it's mm-hmm. just the same it's, just, it's the same key and it just keeps repeating it was eight bars uh, and it's just simple you never goes away from it and some of us who who have all these uh, uh, things we think about stay with the hook you know don't don't mm-hmm. go away from the hook don't get too cute don't get too complicated because the, the fans want to hear that melody and and the way that that record was produced was so clearly uh, on the on the money in terms of drive home that hook, drive home the uniqueness. It just m- made me want to go back to the drawing boards. I want to try to do that. <laughs> I want to try to do something similar. But then you realize it's not easy to, to find that magic. I think a lot of our fan base might not know that Breezen was written by Bobby Womack. Um, it's actually a Bobby Womack cover, which I did know. I just recently found the Bobby Womack original. And, you know, I, I tend to forget that Bobby Womack was actually a, a good guitar player. Like, yeah. so, you know, that was an instrumental on one of his records in 1971. Um, and I'm getting, to know, I'm getting to, to know Questlove as a musicologist, too. Nah, we're just, <laughs> we're just music wow. nerds, man. That's I should all be taking notes. 
Because I, <laughs> I, I knew that sort of in my distant memory, but I, I don't think I ever heard Bobby Womack's version. Yeah. No, it's it's damn near the same song, uh, just with a, a harder, well, when we say harder, more like a hip hoppers should jump on it. Like it's, it's actually amazing. The drums are more cracking on the, the Womack version. Mm. What were you going to ask, Steve? Uh, well, we kind of breezed right over it. Uh, the time period that I wanted to talk about the, uh, uh, I mean, Bob James had, uh, the coolest, one of the most iconic jazz labels of all time with Tappan Zee records. And I'm, I'm a little, um, curious about the, the timetable because you were a and ring at Columbia. Was that during the CTI years when you were arranging and, and also playing on CTI records? I kind of had reached the end of my CTI uh, after my four solo albums that ended up around 1977. And there were some problems with CTI in the business world too. And in the, lack of payment of royalties, et cetera, which um, uh, necessitated me litigating there. I'm beginning to make it sound like I'm a... I'm a <laughs> litigious a James. But <laughs> I hope I wasn't in the, in the long version of that. But there have been times when I've had to protect, and in this case, I'm glad I did, because I ended up with the ownership of my four records, which which made it possible for me to make many, many things happen. So I left in 1977, negotiated with Columbia, and signed there where Bruce Lundvall was the president. And he did give me the opportunity to start a small custom label with the idea that I could do a continuation of sort of the CTI approach in, in which uh, I had done enough in this role of a ranger conductor for Cree Taylor that that my intention was to not do exactly what Cree Taylor did, but my version of it and to try to develop my own style, but influenced by him. And very early to tonight, you mentioned Joe Jorgensen, uh, uh, but many, many memories. I wanted Joe Jorgensen to be my Rudy Van Gelder because Rudy Van Gelder was a very unique engineer for Cree Taylor and and his style of engineering, the sound of those records were very different from anything else that was out there. And in my experience of doing studio work in New York, Joe was the guy that I thought had the most interesting ears mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that the two of us could collaborate on trying to come up with uh, our own sound. Would Rudy pre-mix the stuff or like, would you guys track first, then mix afterwards? That's a very good, funny question because uh, Rudy uh, was extremely secretive about any of his techniques and he did not like sharing. He did not like anybody asking him any questions about it. You knew what my next question was. (laughs) It was like, share the secrets. So I got the job of writing these arrangements on where we'd have the basic tracks and all Rudy would be willing to give me was this rough a two track from the basic sessions and I would take that home and listen to that to make my arrangements and the mix on those roughs that he sent me were the worst, most crude, no reverb, no ambience, nothing because he didn't want to let anything out of his studio. Uh, uh, 
that could even possibly be released. And so I, that memory of his mixing is so completely different from the way anybody else worked. Wait, do you have a dry, Rudy flat mix in your possession? Well, I have many. Real drills, if I could find a real-to-real player that would play them. I'm begging you to make a compilation of just dry. Because the thing is, is until, like, Steve really got me into, like, listening to Steve's obsession with CDI. Like, and I'm sorry for really carjacking this interview, Steve. Like, Steve is a CTI-cologist. So the thing is, is that when I started studying Rudy's mixing thing, I never was a fan of compression because I never liked being squeezed. But somehow, on your on your records, on Grover's records, like certain CTI product, there's there's kind of a... I don't know. I, I, I can't... I don't have a, the, the proper eloquence to say the right words that describe... Rudy's texture and his relationship with reverb and compression, but like, yeah, that's that's the secret sauce that I'm dying because I feel like that is the the apex of '70s production that I can't master just yet. Go and, to go to his studio; it's still open. Let's go record and still there. unscathed and still. Yeah, it's, uh, it's exactly the no, same. I, I, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Uh, even though I spent, it was almost like a full time job, being there every day in that studio for five or six years, and I never learned much about the details of it either because he wouldn't talk about it. He wouldn't share anything. <laughs> every one of his, all of his gear, uh, like his equalizers or compressor, anything like that that he had, he had taped over the manufacturers, the names of them. So he didn't, want to, he didn't even want you to know what they were. That's hip hop. See, that's hip hop. That's hiding the labels. Like y'all don't even know that y'all <laughs> following a cycle. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us 
ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So yeah, hey guys, uh, Bob James had one of the most iconic jazz labels of all time called Tappan Z Records, and... Yeah, I just wanted to, I found it really interesting what artists you chose to be, have leader albums on Tap and Z. Obviously, you had so many of your own records on that label as well, but I want to just run some names by you that might not necessarily be household names for our listeners or for or for us. And if maybe you could just give us just a brief, you know, blurb about them, because I'd be interested. Wilbert Longmire. Yeah, yeah, I found out about Wilbert through George Benson, actually. He he and George Benson were friends, and George had heard him. And, yeah, he sang and, and played guitar. And to get a recommendation from George Benson is about as good as you could hope for. So that's the main reason why I signed Wilbert. And it was at a, at a time when I was very much in the heat of wanting to be a good follow-up to the CTI sound, but mm. my own version of it. Wow. Uh, and that's the, that was the end result of it. Okay. Um, Joanne Brackeen? Very, very original pianist. Amazing. Uh, she could not be produced in any kind of a way like some of the other mm -hmm. fusion artists that I had a chance to work with. She was completely uh, her own person. So my role with her in some ways was to try to be like what I would want a producer to be with me if I just had complete authority to do whatever I wanted to do. And I, I knew that, that it would be a kind of simple production because she just wanted to play jazz with a great rhythm section for, and make sure we had the best engineer for her, get the right sounds for her, and let her do her own thing. That was pretty much my my goal with, with Joanne. There was um, an artist named Mark Colby that did a couple records on Tap and Z. Yeah, he toured with me a lot, played my band, and uh, I've always loved the power in his playing, and uh, I could treat him similarly to the way I tried to treat Grover Washington, for example, another saxophone player for that label. Uh, uh, very fond memories of those records. And uh, Richard T., the piano player, did a leader album or two on Tap and Z as well. Yeah, well, Richard, being a member of that that stuff rhythm section that had Eric Gale on guitar and and uh, Gordon Edwards bass and Ralph McDonald percussion. They were a kind of, of quintessential top, top of the line R&B um, based rhythm section. And Richard T's unique kind of heavily church influenced combination organ and sometimes Fender Rhodes. Uh, I, I, I just loved everything about him. I, I was trying to emulate some of his uh, feel uh, 
because I was alongside him on many sessions where some of Quincy Jones' dates and a lot of New York studio dates, Richard would be on organ and I would be on piano or sometimes trade-off or whatever. So getting to know him that way and realizing what a uniquely great artist he was, of course, he was an obvious one for me to try to sign. And uh, Steve Kahn, the guitar player, I think that was the first Tappan Zee record? Might have been. Steve was very determined that he wanted the Columbia identity on his album also. So he allowed me to put the <laughs> logo on it. But, but the, the oh, he wanted the red label, not the blue. <laughs> kind of like that. You know, but uh, didn't have as, enough prestige and that he needed the big name on there too. And he and I were, were friends. And, uh, so being he was, a small he was, label he, and smaller budgets, mm -hmm. I was somewhat limited to sign the people that were within my sphere that I either knew or that I knew that they were available. Just a couple more. Um, Mongo Santa Maria. Well, yes, and he came through the bigger label as well. Particular kind of sound, Latin American sound that I wasn't doing with anybody else, made it possible for us to make some pretty cool records with him. And where did you come across Alan Harris? Came to me through Columbia, through just the, uh, and the most unusual Tappancy project, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, and the one that I had the least influence over. I don't remember doing anything musically on it other than making it possible for him to do his thing and trying to treat him the way I would have wanted to be treated as a producer, make it possible for him to create his music. Okay, the, the, the last one, the one I want to know the most about it seemed to be kind of your partner at the label which was jay chataway can you tell us who uh, some a little bit about him well i think i had maybe originally found out about him through maynard ferguson because he had done a lot of arranging from maynard and i was in need of somebody that did, had the same kind of arranging background as me because i was not able to keep up with the requests that i was getting to arrangements so I started working with him in that way I got to know him a little bit and we hit it off and I, I knew he had a similar approach to sound production and yeah we had some really very good years and have remained friends I just he's a big sailor fan he and his wife live on a boat a lot of times of the year and they take their take their boat to various places and just take up residence. Uh, for a long time, he moved after he, after Tapazi stopped, he moved to LA and had a very successful career as a movie composer. And he was very involved in the Star Trek series. Very, very talented guy. Uh, let me just wrap up the Tapazi thing, Amir. You did uh, such an incredible job with that label. Really the, the best thing that a label can do, which is create this, uh, a whole world unto itself uh, with all the beautiful continuity with the, the, the album covers, the beautiful gatefold album covers. And really, you really knocked it out of the park with the, with Tap and Z. It was, I mean, you're welcome for all the rabbit holes uh, folks out there with all those names, but <laughs> all those Tap and Z records are great. They Just are. a little short anecdote related. Maybe not the Alan Harris record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say that. Um, <laughs> you said it now. Uh, short thing, since you mentioned Joe Jorgensen, 
I more and more think that there just aren't really any total coincidences in in life, that some things just happen for a reason. Uh, recently, I was contacted by Joe's son, Michael Jorgensen, who is interested in doing a biography on me, and he works with a video production company, and they, we, I've been um, starting up a, a project in which he's going to do a bi bi biographical thing. He's a member of the group Wilco, uh, who's mm. yeah, 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 yeah. But when he grew up, he was when he was I don't know ten or twelve years old. His father Joe would invite him into the studio where we were making all those records during that period of time, and he formed his taste and everything else based upon listening to all of those records. And so many many years later, after he's gone into business as a keyboard player and has a lot of success with Wilco, now we're meeting again, and it gives me a chance to pay my respects and have such fond memories of all those great records that Joe did with yeah. me. You hear that, Amir? Stay on good terms with your engineer. It could pay off. Yes, whatever, Steve. <laughs> very um, important. But your very first production was on uh, another Creed Taylor label called Salvation with Gabor Zabo, the Hungarian guitar player. Uh, what was that like, your first production, and what was Gabor Zabo like? 1975. Yeah. The unique aspect of that for me was it was the only time that I was able to actually produce and do something without Creed Taylor being there. It was his label, but he gave me the flexibility to just do that project on my own. And I went out and to L.A. and, uh, and did it. And uh, he was, Gabor was definitely a gypsy, and he had his own uh, style of approach, which I... Uh, tried to keep that gypsy aspect but to try to bring my, some of my own style into it i wish i could have done more with him because he's he he's kind of like an ideal artist for an arranger to produce because i want to have the tapestry surrounding him but i want him to be able to stay mm. within his own style and that's what i was trying to do on wow um, gary mcfarland worked a lot with him in that regard yes. Yes, definitely. I love Gary McFarland's work. In fact, I was very influenced by it. I used to study his records to try to figure out how he made his choices. Mm, yeah. The Sign of the Times record. Now, I get the feeling I'm about to answer my own question, say Quincy Jones, but I'll ask you, how did you get involved with uh, Rod Temperton working on that album? Quincy introduced me to Rod and he was in the studio on a couple of the records that I was involved with, with, with Quincy. And I was a big fan and admirer and Quincy put us together because he thought that we might hit it off. And even though Rod specifically with his talent was not a classical music, that I didn't think that much of, of an influence, but as he, as I was working with him, he just had a whole cinematic, classical way of talking to me, and we hit it off. And uh, I was trying to learn from him. I don't, I don't think Thriller had had. I can't remember where he was. And he was. He just finished off the wall, and Thriller's about to come uh, the next year. Yeah. So big. <laughs> In other words. Yeah. 
kind of out of my league, and I was kind of shocked that he was even willing to spend some time with me. But at least I had a chance to work in the studio with him. He had his own complete language of how he talked and how he put together his vocals, and they were totally different from anything that I was aware of. Uh, so it was very much a learning process. And the difference, I guess the main difference in the success there was that he, when he worked with me, he had Bob James. And when he worked with Michael Jackson, he had Michael Jackson. So that, right. <laughs> that kind of says it all. That makes the difference in the success level. I guess you co-scored one of my all-time favorite films. And I didn't, I didn't realize it until maybe a year and a half ago during the pandemic that you created the King of Comedy score. So can you talk about working with Scorsese and... Well, you're crazy. Where do you get all these details? How do you know? You know more information than I did. Dude, the pandemic happens and... Trust me, the pandemic happens, you you read all the fine print to keep yourself busy. Gosh, I mean, uh, I should have done a lot of homework before I did this <laughs> with you, Questlove, but you know so much. And I got to say, my memories of working on that are so vague in my mind now. I'm not sure that I even remember how to talk about it very much. You just threw it together and just gave it to them? Well, no, I mean, I, I know that I was treating it very seriously at the time, oh. but I haven't listened back to it in what, it's been 20, 30, 25 years ago, or at least. It's had uh, 40. And, oh, okay, well, <laughs> if, and when you reach my my age, you know how hard it is to keep retaining a lot of those memories. Right. I don't have much of a memory other than the way you described it as a weird film made it yeah. a weird assignment for me to to make music for it. That's that's kind of about all I'd be able to say at this point. But no. let's do another Zoom. I'll do some homework, listen to it again, and maybe I'll have something more intelligent to say. No, I, I, you know, I, I watch it like maybe five times a year. So for me, like I like when dark films have light music scores because it makes it even darker. So <laughs> It contributes to the, the power, I think. Rather than everything be dark, it's too obvious. Right. You're right. This is sort of on the same level. But um, so I, I used to work in a record store back in high school. And this is right when you and David Sanborn started your collaboration pro process. I think this was maybe this is the Double Vision album. But I just got to know this. You guys fade. You guys fade Al Jarreau's voice right when he's about to start scatting like a madman on Since I Fell For You. And <laughs> every time I hear it, like I'm 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 now a collector of of Pro Tools and whatnot. You know, like I like hearing the original versions in, in its dry state and see what happens after the fade. But how long do, do you have any memory of how long that song goes on after the fade? Because right when the fade goes down, that's when like Al Jarreau just starts scatting out of his mind and I always wanted to know what happens after that fade. Well, I, I can say that I was 
probably not there on the mix uh, and the, that choice. Uh, I don't remember being there. I didn't produce it. I mean, it was my, my albums, my name on it. Uh, right. But that fade, usually I would have been very involved and in very specifically with the last thing that you want people to hear and you want it to be hot. You want it to be... And I think the fade works just in the way you described it because it left you wanting more and it left it when it's at its most hot. What I would yeah. say about that record to you is that uh, I'm very proud of the pre-production arranging and scoring that I did, which is uh, would have been a conventional string orchestra and um, brass and whatever, but I chose to do it with my home studio equipment, and it's it's all the strings, all the horns, everything else are me synthesizers. And I and many people give me credit that when they hear it, it sounds like a full, large orchestra production. But I I had a Otari eight track, and this was in the era when you had the multi track uh, studio or whatever in the studio, and then you had to bounce down in order to do the overdub. So I took Bill Schnee, I guess it was, made a pre mix bouncing down, and all of the basic tracks were on. He gave me four tracks or something like that to work with. And I I created the woodwinds and French horns and strings and all that were synthesized. And the part that I love the most was in that exact section you're talking about where he he goes or something like that. And right. I, I scored it for the French <laughs> horns going in. The French horns echo that line. And because I had the rough mix that I from from I, that had his vocal already on it, when I was working on my scoring, I was able to actually write the orchestration after the fact to make it sound like Al was responding to the orchestra. So right, but, okay. But those French horns were not there when he sang it. So so I added the French horns before, so it would make it sound like he was ad libbing to my orchestration, and it. If if I do sort of like Steve Gadd drumming, see now same, now I realize the same exact approach. Yeah, the power the power of post production. Now that's that's the lesson I learned today. No, that was at the time when I was working at that record store. I think um, Moonlighting, uh, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd's uh, show, very popular show on ABC, had just started using that song. Um, so suddenly a whole. That was back in the day when, like, a show like that could feature a song, and then suddenly everybody's coming in requesting it. And yeah, when that that came out, just the whole world just started asking for. Since I, you know, fell for you that that uh, that cover, so always wanted to do that. Tables uh, and ask you, uh, sure, one question in this. Yeah, absolutely. Since I have the opportunity, yeah, this is a hypothetical only. So since you nor I are kind of session players these days, but if we were in New York, session players. Yes, and, let's do it. And if there's a, a trio date that we were called upon to do. and um, You we had me at hello. Looking for a bass player, who would you recommend <laughs> to do a trio date with with you on piano and me on drums. I mean the opposite. <laughs> or we could do that. 
<laughs> um, we, I, I would actually. Mm. Derek Hodge. Let's see. Who? Derek Hodge. I would say either Hodge or I would actually go with Pino. Pino. Oh, of course, yeah. Pino. Gotcha. I would go with Pino, Derek Hodge. We can go with Christian McBride. Or McBride, but Pino is, you know. I, mean, I like the idea of Pino. I've worked with Pino a little bit many years ago, and Christian McBride I did an album with, so that could be that, but the Pino is more yeah. unusual, and since you've worked with them, let's go with that. Are you are you committed to a label right now? Uh, Tappan Z. Um, we'll do it on Tappan <laughs> Z. Yeah. See, I, was- I got to say, I'm sorry. This is the I have to cut in here because I have my own jazz label here as well. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thanks partially to my love for Tap and Z, and um, and uh, we can go co uh, co on that if you're if you're interested. But um, I was only joking about Tap and Z. It's it's kind of dormant. Let's bring it back, man. Let's bring it back. JMI. Yeah, I was about to say I'm, and Z. I'm, and Z. I'm, I'm signed to JMI for all my jazz stuff, so I got to ask my label president no, no, right here. Yeah, yeah we're, 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 I think we're good for. We're good for a Bob James Pino Quest album. Oh, yes, we'll sign on for we, that. We are absolutely going to do that. You and I'm not doing that like fake. You heard it here first, people. No, we're <laughs> we're making. I'm telling you, I got so much envy when I saw that clip uh, at Blue Note, and you know I was mm. working all week. So, but nah, you, you're you're a favorite of mine, and you know I I thank you for letting us nerd out on you for two hours. Yes, we will make this happen. Yay, yay. Okay, I hope that was recorded. Yes, it's absolutely (laughs) recorded. You can sue me if I renege on 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 this on this audio contract. Let's do it it soon because of the age factor. So we don't (laughs) Yes, I I don't know if I have much time left. So yes, I will do it. You will be here forever. Trust me. Steve, I'll leave you with the last question, then I'm signing out. Uh, yeah, last question. Whose idea was it to name the first four Bob James albums, one, two, three, four? Because we're modeling Ray Angry's uh, catalog after that on our label. But uh, was that preconceived, or did you just do that as it went along? Definitely Cree Taylor's idea, and the way he explained it to me at that time, because we were very aware of Chicago, the group Chicago had done. Oh, yeah. right. Uh, okay. Talking about it a lot, and the way I remember Creed thinking about it strategically was that and this was nice that he was thinking that i might have longevity but if you name if if you name it that way you get to your album five and the people are fans they know that they got four that they have to collect so the more records you make and i did have it happen to me that after i got up to 10 or whatever that the, the avid Fans know what they have to look for. That ooh, I don't have eight, or I don't have. And I, I heard him talking about that, but that was that was what was in his mind. Oh my gosh! Well, thank you, thank you for the there. Time. You have it. Do we have time for me to tell you one more little thing? Because yes, you and I encountered each other when I came in the middle of your back and forth thing that you had going with Bismarck Key about the bells. Damn, I forgot about the bells. <laughs> Sure. Now that he's no longer with us, can you just release a copy of Peter Piper without the bells? Well, here's what I wanted to tell you. I did a little roundtable at the Blue Note uh, with some hip-hop guys, and we had a surprise for them because my engineer, David, we, we had gone out to Iron Mountain to, to check out my master recordings, the multi-tracks, and, right. so I, uh, and got the multi-tracks from those sessions for 
of that album, Take Me to Mardi Gras, and we have an outtake of uh, a different take of Take Me to Mardi Gras that David made a rough mix and played it for these guys at the round table that nobody had heard before. And uh, it's it's got the bells on there, but I have the multi-tracks and I can do whatever I want. And, and when I went to Iron Mountain to check them out to make sure that the multi-tracks were still in good shape, I was able to sit at the console and push a solo button and hear boom, 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 boom. Wow. And it's a different, a little bit different groove and played, I played the melody differently, a different keyboard solo in, in the middle. And of course it doesn't have any of the other production, any of the strings, all that other stuff because right. it was out. I do have a question, just a bonus question. You, you have a tendency to use a lot of sound effects Mm-hmm. on your right what's the purpose of that because even with take me to the mardi gras and even with alley of the shadows like what was the purpose in using those like sound effect records on top of the music cinematic i i don't know that we were even that specific about it but uh, the atmosphere with with take me to mardi gras we were trying to create the party new orleans kind of a atmosphere so that was that one was pretty clear basically. with animal sounds <laughs> no i don't know <laughs> yeah no, no it's like a, it sounds like a bunch it. of sheep in the background or something but I, it, it sounds it sounds like they were just having fun is what it sounds okay. like a lot on tap and z they use a lot of sound effects on tap and z and it's just you know you can tell they're just having a blast yeah we're gonna have new sound effects that we'll that we'll be able to do on the <laughs> let's make it happen we're all analog, though, so bring your analog thoughts. Yes, we'll do this. So on behalf of uh, Sugar Steve, Laia, Fontigolo, and Unpaid Bill, this is Questlove talking to the great, immortal Bob James, uh, my my future collaborator. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're going to do this project and, and, and up your Grammy count. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm calling it right now. This is Questlove Supreme. One of the, the Dude, this is nerd's paradise right now, <laughs> and I'm happy, and I'll see you guys on the next go-round. Quest Love Supreme. See y'all. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. 
This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.